Hello there, History Rockers. Welcome back. It's really good to see you all. I'm going to start with a joke because I know you're going to love it. What is the Romanov's favourite thing to have for lunch? Sardines. Yay! <laughs> it's bad. I know, but I know you love it. Listen, if you've got any fantastic jokes that you want to email in, or you want to do a little shout out to somebody, or wish somebody good luck in their forthcoming mock exams, why not drop me in line on hello at historyrocks.co.uk and I'll be sure to read out that message for you. Now, because of popular demand, I've decided to pick up on a few episodes for the very popular 1H with AQA. This is the Tsarist and Communist Russia unit, a breadth unit, that is between 1855 and 1964, when poor little Khrushchev was ousted from power. I love Krushy, babe. What a fantastic man. Uh, but more on that later, I would suggest. Um, this episode is going out to the very lovely students down at Winstanley College. Hello and welcome to the History Rockers Army. Uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, so what I'm going to do today is give a little bit on the background to what the Russian Empire was like in the 19th century. The reason I'm doing this is because, because this is a breadth unit, you really need to know the starting points, what conditions were like, be it social, political, you know, environmental in this case, that we're going to look at today as well. Um, thinking about, you know, its infrastructure, thinking about its industry, thinking about all of these sort of things. OK, we need to know the background because given that this is a breadth unit, we need to measure continuity and change over time. So we need to know where it started in order to measure the level of progress over time and indeed what issues continued to be problematic over time as well. Uh, so it'd be worthwhile, if you're thinking of doing some revision on 1H, to split the unit up into sort of, I'd say, 25-year blocks, some of which will overlap, where you literally just draw yourself a list up of everything, the conditions, social, economic, political, etc., um, at the start of the period, and then what they were like at the end of the period. Measure then how much continuity and change has been within that. Um, and you can do that between leaders as well. You can do that under a leadership, and you can do that right across the period of time. And it's going to really help, I think, uh, frame your essays if you know the starting points. Okay, so today's lesson really is just going to be focusing on a little bit of the background, what Russia was like in the 19th century. Um, and, uh, you know, this is going to help you measure the level of change under Alexander II. Um, and importantly, why is it they lost that Crimean War and its impact um, on Russian politics and society generally? So what do we need to know? Well, Russia's enormous. Now, you're aware of this already, although the Russia that we see today is nowhere near as big as it was in the 19th century before the outbreak of World War One. Um, it was around 22.4 million miles squared. 
That's the equivalent to about 70 United Kingdoms. Absolutely enormous. Now, that caused problems in its own right, which we'll talk about very shortly. Um, But it was huge. Uh, What else do we need to know? Mostly peasantry. About 85% um, were peasants. So consequently, the, the Russian Empire in the 19th century had a very, very small industrial um, capacity. It hadn't gone through the industrialization that we see here in non-sunny Manchester, for example, uh, because here in Manchester, of course, Cottonopolis, we saw the emergence of textile mills. Um, and of course, this is where Karl Marx came to study the working conditions uh, amongst the working class here. But none of that existed within Russia. The factories that did exist tended to be owned by nobles. Um, and actually, the nobility could find themselves stripped of their factories or things like that if they crossed the Tsar. And that did happen on a few occasions um, throughout the 19th century. Now, this is all a bit of a shame, really, because Russia has an enormous quantity of natural resources, which they could have tapped into, really. Uh, Think of everything from coal, oil, gold, diamonds, gas. They have access to it. Um, And consequently, uh, they could have used a lot of this, I think, and it would have helped, certainly, during the um, Crimean War um, to weaponize themselves. But they didn't. Uh, They didn't really do that. Most of those factories owned by those nobles were using coerced peasant labour as well. So this would be peasantry uh, that's coming from nearby villages, for instance, if you've got road access that you can get them there. Um, So they're not really skilled workers in that respect. And of course, 85%, therefore, of the population of the country, there or thereabouts, were completely illiterate. Um, Even the judges within Russia were illiterate and had to rely upon the court secretaries. Um, So, you know, quite an enormous amount of the population. Now, you might think, well, why is that? Well, you know, if you're an autocrat, you don't really want an educated mass in that sense, because they'll start questioning uh, your power and your position in society. You know, you go through a period of enlightenment, which we don't really have. Um, within Russia. They are in, I guess, blissful ignorance in that sense. Uh, So very limited industry. In addition, very limited infrastructure. We don't have any railways. There are few roads, um, most of it's sort of dirt track. And I think you see this within the Crimean War itself. They only managed to mobilise, one figure I came across, about 60,000 Russian troops to the Crimean War of a possible 1 million. Um, It can take messengers, for instance, um, you know, some time to traverse um, the the, um, topography of Russia in order to get one message from one part of Russia to the next. It it could take days, months in order to get those messages across. Um, Consequently, it also made the country very difficult to administer. There were very, I guess, very few government officials within Russia. It was about four to every thousand inhabitants. Uh, There weren't really a proper sort of police system, for instance. Uh, They would use the army, really, to put down any flare-ups in civil unrest. 
Uh, so consequently, they tended to rely upon the infrastructure of the Orthodox Church to do much of this for them. And that really ties in the Orthodox Church to uh, Tsarism um, and the autocracy itself. What else do we need to know? Well, the climate is pretty dramatic within Russia. It can swing quite drastically from, say, maybe plus 37 degrees Celsius in the summer uh, to as low. I think the, the record is minus 68 degrees Celsius. But although you might have come across a different figure, by all means, send it in to hello at historyrocks.co.uk if you have. So I reckon, therefore, that the annual average temperature is about minus 5.5 degrees Celsius. Most of the country is infertile. Uh, for instance, you've got the tundra, for example, which is just covered with permafrost for most of the period. Uh, the taiga uh, zone in Russia is covered by dense, thick forests, which makes it very boggy and marshy and really not easy to grow anything upon. So the main fertile region within Russia would be the Black Earth region or the steppe. Um, and this is quite a large area for sure, uh, covering, you know, from east to west. But what we found um, when we studied this is that a lot of the crop yield um, from this region hadn't improved at all since the Middle Ages. There are no modern or mechanical agricultural techniques that have really been adopted here. Again, you know, compare that to the experience within England, um, you know, Jeffro Tull and all of that sort of thing, harvesting. Uh, we don't have any of that mechanization within agriculture. In fact, the if we compare Europe to Russia um, since the Middle Ages, um, into the 19th century, Russia witnessed no increase in the crop yields, whereas Europe would increase a crop yield increase of about four and a half times. Uh, so there's basically no incentive um, to improve agriculture at all. Uh, this is largely because it's reliant upon serfdom. Um, so this is, you know, not quite slavery, but they can be bought and sold. Uh, they don't have any rights to sort of own property or buy and sell things or do business in the same way um, as perhaps free people would. Uh, and consequently, the serfs were often paying for the land that they're working upon, either through Jews to their landlord or the government, uh, or they'd be handing over a portion of their crops as well. So they didn't have surplus crops to sell on private market uh, so it, it, it doesn't mean then that you get a reinvestment in agriculture, that there's no incentive to do that at all. We also witnessed, but again, in part because of the climate and part because of the backwardness in agricultural production, uh, lots of famines and poor harvests, failed harvests throughout that 19th century. Uh, so, for instance, in the period 1891 to 92, uh, we had the deaths of about 400,000 people due to famine, um, but also the diseases and things that came on the back of that as well. We know that um, majority of people are illiterate and uneducated. Um, and we know that the village people um, 
outnumbered in terms of ratio town people by about 11 to 1. Um, most of the serfs themselves belong to village communities or mirs, for example, where their elders regulated um, what was going on, their primitive strip farming, basically, in that region. Uh, and everyone really was really religious. Uh, the Orthodox Church was very strong and a big feature in people's lives. And everybody believed that the Tsar had been appointed by God. He was a complete autocrat. Even some of the bodies that surrounded the Tsar, such as like, you know, the imperial ministers or something like that, these were made up of nobles who he'd handpicked uh, to advise him. And he could completely ignore them and just issue edicts himself, regardless of what they said. So there's no democracy within Russia during the 19th century as well. Um, very unlike then the rest of Europe. And if you think about England with Parliament, I mean, granted that everybody had the right to vote. Uh, but many of them did by after the first 1832 Reform Act and the 1867 Reform Act, they were beginning to expand the number of working men in the UK and their right to vote. But of course, in Russia, nothing like that at all. Uh, so, okay, uh, this gives you a little bit of a background. Um, think about how these things are going to play out then within the Crimean War. And I think maybe that's where we'll go next, because what we need to do, what the big first topics really, is to weigh up how accurate is it to describe Alexander II as a czar liberator? Uh, does he really bring in drastic reform within Russia? And that's what we'll look at next. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to sign off for this afternoon. I hope you found that interesting and useful. Um, and, you know, I'll be back with some more episodes very soon. All right. Take care now. Bye. <laughs>